Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we've been watching President Biden and German Chancellor Olaf Scholz speaking at the White House after a meeting on how to attempt to defer, deter Russian aggression in Ukraine. Scholz promising that he and Biden have agreed on severe sanctions against Russia if that country invades Ukraine. Germany's willingness to confront the Kremlin alongside the United States has been called into question in recent weeks. We're going to talk to the German Chancellor in the studio here live shortly. Uh, but before we do, uh, let's talk about this with CNN's chief national security correspondent, Jim Shudo. Um, Jim, obviously, as is tradition, everybody pretended there was no daylight, that Germany and the United States uh, were on the same page 100%. That's not actually accurate, though. Well, on the question of Nord Stream 2, this has been the big question because that would be one of the meatiest sanctions that the U.S. and the West can impose. The president said in no uncertain terms, quoting him, it's not going to happen if Russia further invades Ukraine. They won't turn on the spigot for the natural gas from Russia into Germany. Exactly. Now, Scholz did not say those same words. He did say that we're unanimously agreed on harsher sanctions. He said we're united. He says it will be very, very hard to Russia if they were to invade. So is Scholz making the same commitment Biden did? Not by the words that he used. Now, it is possible, you and I were discussing this as it was happening, that the U.S. president said to him, regardless of what you're willing to say publicly, I'm, we're not going to let that happen, right? Because there are sanctions the U.S. can impose. We will impose so many crippling economic punishments exactly. that you, you won't be able to turn it on. Exactly. And I think big picture, to step back for a moment, on that issue, perhaps there's still daylight there. That said, on the larger issue of any further Russian military action inside Ukraine, the two nations do seem to be on the same page here. And on, on this piece that if Russia does invade, there will be severe economic sanctions on them. That, that was not a guarantee right. a few months ago, particularly with a new German leader. Right. Though it is also accurate to say that Germany is not providing lethal military yes. aid to the Ukrainians. Uh, and, it, and, in, and in fact, um, they won't even let, I think it was the Estonians, transfer German weapons uh, from their country to Ukraine. Uh, there's even concerns of the British saying that we're, we're not even uh, asking for permission to fly over Germany in delivering our lethal aid because, we, because perhaps uh, Chancellor uh, Scholz will, will reject our request. And that's not insignificant because what the Ukrainians want and, and what many U.S. US allies believe they need and NATO allies is they need lethal assistance to, write, to, to not make this a fair fight because it won't be with Russia ever, but to make it a more difficult fight for Russia. I think one thing to be said is that the U.S. administration has become comfortable with, and one official described it to me this way, coalitions of the willing on this, right? For yeah. instance, with the movement of NATO forces to Eastern Europe, that wasn't all of NATO that agreed to it. It was a handful of countries that agreed, and they were fine with that. On lethal military assistance to Ukraine, it's not the entire NATO alliance comfortable with it. It's a handful of nations. The U.S. is comfortable with that. Basically, Biden is figuring out there are certain things he could get the whole alliance on board for, certain things he can't. And when he can't, he'll move with smaller groups, in effect. And, of course, it's important to note that Ukraine is not a member of NATO. Exactly. It, that's an important uh, distinction. Okay. Uh, stick with us, Jim. I want to bring in CNN's team of reporters covering this meeting between uh, Olaf Scholz uh, and Joe Biden. Uh, from around the world, Alex Marquardt is in uh, Kiev, uh, Ukraine for us. Nick Robertson is in Moscow. Alex, let me start with you. U.S. officials tell CNN that Putin has now assembled... 70% of the manpower and weapons that he will need on Ukraine's borders for a full-scale invasion of the country. Some assessments show 
uh, that Russia could even take the Ukrainian capital, where you are right now, within 48 hours of an invasion. Uh, what are you hearing from uh, Ukrainian government officials about this? Yeah, Jake, you know, where I'm standing here in the Ukrainian capital is just about a two-hour drive uh, to the Belarusian border, uh, where Russian troops have been building up uh, their presence there under uh, the excuse, the pretext that they're going to be carrying out uh, exercises with Belarusian forces uh, in, in the coming days. Uh, we can see on satellite imagery that those Russian forces are getting bigger and they are getting closer. Um, so not only could they uh, get to Kiev very fast, um, as you mentioned, uh, U.S. officials believe that some 70 percent of the forces are already in place uh, to carry out a large-scale invasion. That's not to say that uh, Vladimir Putin couldn't order something on, on a smaller scale and do it much more quickly. And assessments go on to believe uh, that there could be millions of refugees and tens of thousands uh, of people killed. Now, what Ukrainian officials are saying is that essentially that the U.S. is being alarmist that all this talk of an imminent attack um, is, is over the top. Now, the White House has dialed that back to some extent, but they are saying that Putin, with the, you know, with the flick of a switch, essentially, could launch an invasion. Um, and so we heard from the Ukrainian foreign minister just yesterday saying that Ukrainians should not believe in what he called apocalyptic predictions. Um, and that there are different capitals predicting different scenarios. And that was a, a, a direct jab uh, at Washington, D.C. Jake, people don't, the, the, these different countries, Europe, Ukraine, the U.S., they don't disagree on what they're seeing in terms of the intelligence. The question is the intent. Uh, the Ukrainians do not seem to be sold on this idea that, you, that Russia is as close to invading uh, as, as, uh, as the U.S. believes uh, Russia is. Um, the Europeans, to some extent, are, are a little bit more in the middle. Um, but no one believes, actually, that, that Putin has made up his mind whether to launch uh, an invasion or not. And we are starting to hear some, some interesting things. I was speaking to a, a senior European official uh, who said that they, their assessment from uh, Russian defense officials is that they don't know what the game plan is. And that just speaks to the extent to which what Putin decides to do is still very much unclear, Jake. Uh, Nick, let me go to you now. French President Emmanuel Macron is uh, meeting with Putin today. Are there any signs uh, that all this diplomacy, this full court press, is doing anything to change Putin's thinking? We're just getting a read on that right now, Jake. They were meeting for about six hours. The meeting's over. They're having a press conference now. We've heard a little bit from President Putin so far. He said that the meeting was businesslike, useful and interesting. Um, he said that they would continue to exchange opinions. But I think one of the uh, headline things that he said, it goes back to the root of his issues, that he hasn't got his security concerns about NATO taken care of. And he said, he said this, um, that NATO doesn't have to take Ukraine in. This is something we hear from Russian officials, that there's no reason for NATO because Ukraine wants to join, for NATO to allow Ukraine to join. So he's still speaking about that. So that issue has not been bridged. On the issue of what 
uh, stability inside Ukraine looks like and what President Putin is pushing for, which is really, you know, what the pro-Russian separatists are pushing for, which is a whole lot more control over their region in Ukraine. Um, he is blaming the Ukrainian government. Putin is blaming the Ukrainian government for, for not meeting the terms of the peace deal there in its entirety. Of course, Secretary of State Antony Blinken just a few hours ago earlier today said it was the other way around, that Ukraine is meeting most of its commitments and Russia is not fulfilling most of its commitments. So this, these are the beginning headlines that we're getting from this press conference that's underway right now here in Moscow, Jake. Yeah, I'm old enough to remember when Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons in exchange for Russia's promise uh, that they would never uh, invade. Uh, let's bring in uh, CNN's Caitlin 94. Collins. Yeah, let's bring in Caitlin Collins right now live at the White House, and she was in the room for the news conference. Caitlin, do you think these two leaders were able to accomplish what, it, what they set out to do today? Well, Jake, obviously what they were trying to accomplish was presenting this united front, saying that they are on the same page, given Germany has come under some criticism from lawmakers from both parties who say that they just aren't being forceful enough or as forceful as these lawmakers would like when it comes to what the repercussions are going to be for Putin if he does invade. And so here tonight, you heard President Biden saying, yes, we are on the same page that Germany is reliable, trying to tamp down some of those concerns. But when they were, when the German chancellor was explicitly asked if he agreed with that position that Nord Stream 2 would not go forward if Russia does invade Ukraine, as President Biden had just said, he did not explicitly say that. And that has been part of that criticism from lawmakers is that he has not said that like other nations have said. He has not talked about sending or he's ruled out sending lethal weapons to Ukraine. He hasn't really detailed what the sanctions would be from Germany when it comes to this. And so I do think that raises the question of just how united the front is if the German chancellor is not taking the opportunity when explicitly asked about that. I think when it comes to the calculus uh, of what Putin is going to do, you saw President Biden say he really thinks only Putin knows what he's going to do, but he is in the position to invade Ukraine if needed. And so therefore the president was advising American civilians who were in Ukraine that he believes it would be wise for them to leave because he said he would hate for them to get caught in the crossfire. Yeah, I mean, the one thing that Schultz and Biden both want is presentation of zero daylight between them, no matter yeah. what the reality is. And, and Jim, uh, we should note this all comes at the same time uh, that sources tell CNN intercepted communications obtained by the U.S. show that there are some Russian officials worried uh, that invading uh, Ukraine would be costlier and more difficult uh, then Vladimir Putin uh, seems to accept. It, it, it's remarkable. First of all, it shows remarkable penetration uh, of U.S. and Western intelligence inside those communications. Also, uh, remarkable willingness to, to share these kinds of things uh, outside the inner circles. But, but what this shows is that you have commanders in the field there who are looking at what they're up against here, uh, perhaps looking at what those weapons are, though not all that Ukraine wanted that are going in, which are designed explicitly to raise the cost for Russian forces. The reason you see armor-penetrating missiles going in there, these javelins, is to kill Russian tanks and armored personnel carriers. That means kill Russian personnel. The reason you see those Baltic states we were talking about sending uh, Stinger anti-aircraft missiles is to take down Russian jets and transport planes and kill Russian personnel. I mean, that's the explicit military intention of these weapons. And what these intercepts show is that the folks commanding those forces and some of the intelligence elements there are looking at that and saying, this is not going to be a cakewalk, right? Yeah. Not that they won't win, by the way, but that it won't be a cakewalk. It'll be costlier in, in terms of uh, materiel and personnel than perhaps originally thought by the Russians. All right, Jim Chiodo, and thanks to everyone else for, for being here. Appreciate it. Coming up, the German Chancellor himself, Olaf Scholz, will join us live on set just moments. Plus, Donald Trump on a tear, literally on a tear, ripping documents from his time in the White House. I've heard 
The National Archives doesn't like it when presidents do that. Stay with us. In our politics lead, the National Archives just announced it's awaiting even more documents from former President Donald Trump after CNN learned the archives took 15 boxes of letters, gifts, and mementos from Trump's Florida resort Mar-a-Lago. That includes letters left by former President Obama to Trump and correspondence between Trump and North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un. Trump once referred to their missives as love letters, of course. As CNN's Ryan Nobles reports, this is yet another example of Trump's mishandling of presidential records. Questions swirling today about records from the Trump White House amid revelations that the former president routinely ripped up documents, drafts, and reading materials. It does violate the requirements of the law to rip up official documents in the White House. The National Archives revealing today that they've obtained 15 boxes of records from Mar-a-Lago that Trump took with him after he left the White House. This coming to light after Trump sued to keep hundreds of records secret from the House Select Committee investigating January 6th. When he lost that case, CNN reporting that the National Archives went in search of documents that the Presidential Records Act required be preserved and discovered many were missing. The archives arranging to pick up the boxes from Trump's Florida resort that included several personal mementos, including letters from Kim Jong-un and former President Obama. It's not the way you're supposed to act, but small surprise, uh, you know, the former president acted in many ways that were um, not uh, the way presidents are required to act. And while the committee pours through the information they do have from the archives, they continue to zero in on the role of former Vice President Mike Pence. The committee has already interviewed three of Pence's top aides, including his former chief of staff, Mark Short. The committee's still holding out the possibility of subpoenaing Pence himself if necessary. I think it's very different to subpoena a former vice president to talk about private conversations he had with the president of the United States. It's never happened before, Mm -hmm. and I think we have significant concerns about the committee. The committee believes the pressure campaign that Pence was under to stand in the way of the certification process helped to foment the rage and violence on that day. A rage that is clearly demonstrated in new videos released by the Justice Department that shows members of the mob calling for Pence by name. If Pence cave, we're going to drag through the streets. Politicians are going to get drugged through the streets. It was pressure Pence ultimately rejected. Meanwhile, Republican leaders continue their effort to whitewash history. The fallout continuing after the Republican National Committee censured two members of the committee, GOP reps Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, accusing them of, quote, participating in a Democrat-led persecution of ordinary citizens engaged in legitimate political discourse. The censure only pushing Kinzinger to work harder. It's actually just made me even double down on my intensity to get to the bottom of this, because that's really frightening when, you know, half of the, in theory, half of the country's party is focused on complete denial of truth. And while the committee still wrestles with the decision of whether or not to use their subpoena power to compel the former vice president to testify, he's not the only one that they're having that conversation about. They're also trying to figure out the best way to get information from their fellow members. They've already asked for voluntary cooperation from three Republican House members. At this point, all three have rejected those claims. So now the committee trying to decide if subpoenaing them is the next step.
Jake? All right, Ryan Nobles on Capitol Hill for us. Thank you so much. A major milestone. Two blue states are about to get rid of their mask mandates for schools, and other states might follow their lead. Stay with us. In our health lead today, welcome news for some parents and certainly for many children. Several governors and other local officials in the U.S. are taking matters into their own hands and easing COVID restrictions in the absence of clear guidance from the Biden administration. Today, two Democratic governors, Phil Murphy of New Jersey and John Carney of Delaware, detailed plans to end mask mandates in schools in their states next month. Several other states are considering similar measures as well. And now uh, CNN's Alexandra Field takes a closer look at how this changing rules could affect your family. Some Democratic governors making dramatic shifts as the country impatiently awaits a pandemic exit plan. The statewide school mask mandate will be lifted. New Jersey's Governor Phil Murphy announcing the end of mask mandates in schools as of March 7th. The governor of Delaware, John Carney, lifting the state's indoor mask mandate as of Friday and lifting the mask mandate for schools at the end of March, while governors in Connecticut and New York have also signaled they could soon ease restrictions. In a couple of weeks, maybe removing the mask is actually the right thing to do. It allows us the opportunity to actually peel off one of those restrictions that has been so controversial. These steps, even in the absence of clear federal guidance on how or when to do that. So I think what governors are sensing is that we need to we need to agree upon a set of metrics when we're going to start to roll back these mitigation steps uh, and give people a light at the end of the tunnel. What is that point when this stuff gets turned off. New COVID cases across the country are down dramatically, but deaths remain high with an average of more than 2,400 Americans losing their lives every day. The unvaccinated are overwhelmingly at the highest risk of severe disease. The CDC advisors are now considering extending the time between the first and second doses of both the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines, which may improve effectiveness and reduce the potential risk of rare side effects. By spacing the time of vaccines, you can actually significantly decrease the risk of myocarditis. And not only that, you can actually increase the level of immunity to the vaccine. The change could particularly encourage more parents of 5 to 12-year-olds to get shots for their kids, health experts say. A proposed law in Georgia moving the other way, seeking to ban all school vaccine requirements. I think it's bad for public health. I think it's bad for our children. And in about face in Flint, Michigan, students are heading back to the classroom after the district previously announced indefinite remote learning. And Jake, while we are seeing some states making this long-awaited move away from masks in schools, the White House has not changed its position. The administration does continue to encourage the use of masks in schools. They say that is in line with CDC recommendations. Jake? All right, Alexander Field, thanks so much. Here to discuss the Democratic governor of New Jersey, Phil Murphy. He's also the vice chair of the National Governors Association. So, Governor, Two years ago, your state and New York were the early epicenters of the virus, and you imposed some of the country's most stringent pandemic-related mandates. Today, cases and hospitalizations have plummeted. On average, New Jersey is seeing about 3,000 cases a day, down from about, down about 90% from last month. Your state also has about 76% of its population fully vaccinated. So explain to us why you made this decision to get rid of mask mandates in schools. Good to be with you, Jake. Uh, a number of factors. Uh, our case case count, hospitalizations, the spot positivity rate, the rate of transmission are all dropping like a rock, number one. Number two, we're making progress with vaccinations of newly eligible groups, including kids. Three, we're optimistic that the under five 
uh, group of kids will soon have be become eligible. Fourthly, we know uh, we have a little bit more latitude four weeks from now when this will be lifted in terms of, uh, of a little bit better weather and ventilation options. You put all that together, you analyze those data streams and realities, it's pretty clear that this, in our judgment, is the right responsible step to take. I said today, we're not declaring victory, but we are stating affirmatively that we can responsibly live with this thing. And that's, that's the reason we're doing it. As you know, uh, most states do not have mask mandates for schools. Uh, have you seen evidence that these mask mandates have been necessary, that the spread and mortality rates in states where they didn't have mask mandates uh, were far worse than in places where they did have mask mandates like New Jersey. Yeah, I mean, New Jersey is clearly the place I know the best, and God bless our precious kids no matter where they are. Please, God, they stay healthy and stay alive. There's no question that masking in our schools since the beginning of the school year uh, has been a very uh, smart public health step. I think we've had just over 2,600 cases of students uh, with uh, COVID positive since the beginning of the school year. That's out of 1.4 million kids. Uh, so it's a pretty stark uh, piece of evidence, I think, that this has absolutely worked. But you got to meet the moment. Y you try always to not undershoot the moment and put lives at risk or overshoot the moment and add more stress and mental health challenges to the system. And we think this plan of a month notice uh, is going to get that as right as we can. Yeah, but have you seen data that definitively proves that these mask mandates uh, have worked? Uh, I mean, the numbers you just presented are impressive, but are they different from the numbers in states where they didn't have mask mandates? Yeah, again, I know Jersey Jake the best, but I'm, I'm highly confident and I'm sure our health officials uh, we'll, we could say it definitively, there's no question they've worked. There's no question getting vaccinated, getting boosted, and wearing masks indoors have all been positive health, public health steps compared to the absence of any of those things in the alternative. Last week, you met with President Biden at the White House during the annual governor's conference. It's been reported that governors uh, from both sides of the aisle have asked Biden to give clear national guidelines uh, about how the country can return to a greater sense of, of normalcy. Are, are you frustrated that those guidelines uh, have not been released yet? No, I think that's a question that we're all trying to get an answer to, all of us uh, in, in positions of responsibility. And it was a very good discussion with the president and his team. How do we migrate that road from pandemic to endemic? What does that road look like? What's the time frame associated with it? We're t we announced the step we're taking today because we think we can responsibly take that step. And I think we all want to get some comfort in what that future looks like. God willing, we're coming out of this. Uh, we're we're going to learn to live with it. Um, but I think we're all, again, searching for exactly what those mileposts look like. Have you tried getting those mileposts from the CDC? Sure. We, we, we've adhered overwhelmingly with the CDC guidance. The reason why we're making this step today is our reality in New Jersey. You rightfully pointed out in the spring of 2020, New Jersey and New York got clobbered first. Each one of these waves, that's been the case. So we are now in a dramatically different place than the norm uh, right now across the country, which is why we feel like we can decouple and take this step.
All right, Governor Phil Murphy from New Jersey, thank you so much for your time, sir. Appreciate it. Coming up next, the German Chancellor will join me live in the studio right after his news conference with President Biden. Stay with us. This is CNN Breaking News. Breaking news in our world lead, President Biden just wrapped up a press conference with the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, the leader of the key NATO ally, has been criticized recently for not standing strongly enough with allies given Russia's possible invasion of Ukraine. But Chancellor Scholz promised today that he and President Biden are in agreement on severe sanctions if Russia follows through with an invasion of Ukraine. The German Chancellor is joining us live here in studio. But first, as CNN's Caitlin Collins reports, while the two leaders presented a united front, there are still clearly some differences in strategy between Biden and his German counterpart. World leaders are ramping up their diplomatic efforts to deter a Russian invasion of Ukraine. French President Macron flying to Moscow to meet with Russian President Putin as President Biden huddled with German Chancellor Olaf Scholz at the White House amid warnings that an incursion could happen at any time. Germany's completely reliable. Completely, totally, thoroughly reliable. I have no doubt about Germany at all. The new German leader attempting to reassure allies after facing criticism for not being forceful enough about the repercussions if Russia invades. These are artillery weapons that the Ukrainians need badly, and yet Germany is not approving it. That makes no sense to me. Germany has been mocked for sending 5,000 helmets instead of weapons to Ukraine, and Chancellor Scholz has declined to say if the natural gas pipeline built between Russia and Germany, known as Nord Stream 2, will be canceled if Russia invades. Will you commit today to turning off and pulling the plug on Nord Stream 2? You didn't mention it. You haven't mentioned it. As I already said, we are acting together. We are absolutely united and we will not taking different steps. U.S. officials have asserted that the pipeline won't become operable if Russia goes into Ukraine. If Russia invades, uh, that means tanks or troops crossing the, uh, the, the border of Ukraine uh, again, then... Uh, there will be uh, we there will be no longer a Nord Stream 2. We, we will bring an end to it. A grim new assessment by the U.S. says Russia already has 70 percent of the combat power needed for an invasion that could result in tens of thousands of civilian deaths. We are in agreement that it cannot be business as usual if Russia further invades. The U.S. has also assessed that the window for diplomacy is closing, but officials still don't believe Putin has made a decision. I know that he's in a position now to be able to invade, almost uh, assuming that uh, um, the, uh, the ground is frozen above Kiev. Uh, he has the capacity to do that. What he's going to do, I don't know. Now, Jake, of course, a big question here is how the United States would stop that pipeline from moving forward if Germany does not sign off on it, which the chancellor did not explicitly do when asked by the reporter there today. And of course, that is a key component of this, given that pipeline goes from Germany to Russia. And when President Biden was asked specifically and exactly how he is going to do that, he said, quote, I promise you we'll be able to do it. All right, Kellen Collins at the White House. Thank you so much. While the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz just met with President Biden here in D.C., the Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky canceled a meeting with the German foreign minister while scheduling difficulties were given as the official reason. A source close to the Ukrainian government tells me that Zelensky canceled the meeting in part because the German foreign minister refused to say explicitly that Germany will abandon the controversial Nord Stream 2 natural gas pipeline from Russia 
Even if Russia invades Ukraine, the other reason, the source says, is because of Germany's refusal to send any military aid to Ukraine directly or indirectly. Joining us live to address this and other critical issues is German Chancellor Olaf Scholz. Chancellor Scholz, thank you so much uh, for being here. We really appreciate it, and we appreciate your, your taking the time to talk to uh, the United States and also our viewers worldwide. Um, that source close to the Ukrainian government tells me, quote, Germany is increasingly viewed as more of a Russian ally than a Western ally by many in Eastern Europe and Kiev. What's your response to that? It's absolutely nonsense and all know about it. We are the biggest donator together with the United States to Ukraine. It's more than $2 billion we spent since 2014. And we are just struggling with the United States who is giving more. We are also giving money to Ukraine via the European Union. This is if we just look at our share, 3.8 billion extra, which is coming to what I already said. And so there is a strict cooperation and support for Ukraine for many years, which we are doing and which we will continue to do. So you and the foreign minister uh, won't say explicitly that if Russia invades Ukraine, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline is dead. Now, and I've heard you refer to this as a strategic ambiguity, but that strategic ambiguity got... President Zelensky so angry today, he, he wouldn't even meet with your foreign minister. Um, I don't know whether this is the truth. You don't He's, know that? It, okay. She is there. I sent her there. She will go into the front line and looking at the situation. I think she's meeting with the and, prime minister and, instead of the and president. And what I already said, we are the one that is giving most of the money which is needed for economic resilience of the Ukraine. And on the other hand, we are absolutely active working together with the United States, especially and with our allies in NATO and the European Union to find out the concrete measures, which we will, the concrete steps we will take uh, if there would be a military aggression and invasion of Russia to the Ukraine. And in this case, we will act absolutely together. We will have all the same steps that we will take then, and we are preparing for this. And this will be a lot of sanctions which will harm the Russia intensely. And this is a work which is not starting today or which... Is starting since one week. We are working for weeks now right. to prepare for that situation, which I think is absolutely necessary. But President Biden said that the pipeline would not happen if Russia invades. You won't say that. How would President Biden stop the pipeline? Just by imposing severe sanctions? And, and, and why won't you explicitly say, Russia, if you invade Ukraine, we're canceling the pipeline? We are doing much more as one step. We are, and all the steps we will take, we will do together. As the president said, we are preparing for that. And you can understand and you can be absolutely sure that Germany will be together with all its allies and especially the United States that we take the same steps. There will be not, no differences in that situation. What we do today is giving this very strong answer to Russia, saying if you invade the Ukraine, this will have a very high price for you, which will have high impacts on your economy and the chances for your development. And we are ready to take steps that will have cost for us ourselves right. on the one hand. On the other hand, we are doing all the necessary things that we can do on the diplomatic channel, but not as an alternative. We do the two things as a two-way strategy. On one hand, giving this strong message to Russia. On the other hand, saying that uh, we will work in all the different formats where there, is, there, where there are talks today. This is the format uh, between the United States and Russia, and it's really the leadership of President Biden that this is happening now. This is the talks between 
NATO and Russia in the NATO Russian Council, which has not happened for a long time and now mm -hmm. it's starting again. Yes, we are just uh, accusing each other in that situation, but this is a step forward if you look at the past. And the same is with the OSCE and especially with the format which uh, we are playing together with uh, France, um, the Normandy format where the Ukraine, Russia, France and Germany are acting together to find out of the conflict of Ukraine. And all this is one strategy we are doing together as right. allies. So the other reason that the source next, uh, close to the Ukrainian government told me that President Zelensky wouldn't meet with your foreign minister uh, is because you are not providing lethal aid, either directly or indirectly. Now, I understand you have a stated policy of not exporting arms to conflict zones. I get that. But you also stopped Estonia from rerouting German arms uh, to Ukraine. But, but I do want to ask you about this policy of not uh, exporting arms to conflict zones, because Germany did send weapons to the Kurds to fight ISIS in 2014, Last year, German weapons exports hit a record high, driven in part by arms sales to Egypt. So clearly, there are exemptions to this policy. Um, isn't it warranted in this case? Don't the Ukrainians need to uh, have uh, an ability to defend themselves? We are doing a lot to support uh, our partners, as we do, for instance, with Israel, which gets a lot of support and military support we can give, which is, I think, of essence. Uh, we did... One decision, as you mentioned, with the Kurds in Iraq, this was necessary because there was no other way and it was a very small activity, but it helped. And uh, we have very strict legislation. And according to this legislation, it was feasible that we could uh, do the activity with uh, Egypt, but we could not during following the legislation uh, with Ukraine. All know this. It's... Uh, a situation since years. And once again, I would like to mention mm -hmm. that Germany is uh, the country that is giving the biggest support to Ukraine compared with all others. Financial and support. Financial support, absolutely. which I think is absolutely key. And on the other hand, you should know that uh, we are the strongest ally of the United States in Europe looking at NATO aspects. We are giving a lot of uh, financial means for our military strengths. And we are also doing the necessary things. For instance, in Lithuania, we are doing a strong mission, enhanced forward presence at the, the eastern flank of NATO. Right. We are doing air policing at this field, and we are working together with our allies in NATO. All know about the strengths of Germany and the necessity of our support and our activities. Mm -hmm. So there will be no strategy of different activities between the partners, and Germany is the strong partner you know in, in Europe uh, of the United States. I, I, there's been reporting that the UK won't even ask Germany for permission to use your airspace to fly lethal aid from the UK to Ukraine because they're afraid that you would deny them permission. Would you, would you deny the UK permission to use your airspace? Never. You would never do that. And all no. I think this is, uh, I don't know who invented the idea of saying that there has been a reason like this behind that. I don't know why they just used uh, the Baltic Sea and not uh, the, the, the play, uh, Germany for going uh, with their airplanes, mm -hmm. but they could have done. And they do all the time, as the United States are now sending troops to Europe and they are sending, they use their bases in Germany for doing so. This is what we do. We are the, the strategic partner for many of the activities of NATO in Europe. And this is... F essence, because the transatlantic partnership is 
key for peace in Europe. And this is what Putin also has to understand, that he will not be able to split European Union or to split uh, NATO. We are, will act together. And one of the key aspects of this strategy is that when now there are bilateral meetings with Putin, for instance, of the French president. Right, Macron now, met with him today. Yeah. When I go to Zelensky next week and later to Putin um, the next day, he will hear the same things from all of us. And this is important because if he gets a statement of NATO, gets a statement when we meet as leaders and say we are acting together and hears different things when we are going talking directly with him, right. this would give him room for maneuver. But now he will understand that this will not happen, that we are standing together. And I think this will help to give the ramp off necessities for him when all these talks are happening, I spoke about. So you, you keep mentioning the, the significant financial support that Germany offers to Ukraine. Um, but the IMF predicts that the Ukrainians will lose more than a billion dollars in annual transit fees if and when the Nord Stream 2 pipeline is completed. That's also a concern for the Ukrainians. This is where we have an agreement with the, the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, I participated intensely uh, in the talks uh, between the former government, I was the vice chancellor then and the finance minister uh, with Chancellor Merkel and uh, President Biden. And we have this agreement from June the last year where we said that we will work on the independence of Ukraine and the gas transit. And we already did so. So it was an activity I personally invented and uh, managed that the former government did so that we are not just looking what might happen with gas transit uh, via Ukraine. We asked, we, 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 we installed uh, a special envoy working together with the European Union, together with Ukraine, towards Russia, that the uh, prolonging of the gas transit agreement happened. Mm-hmm. And we agreed with the United States that we will do all for making clear that the gas transit via Ukraine will happen in future as well. And this is one of the big tasks of our strategy to make this a reality in future, too. One one of your predecessors, Gerhard Schroeder, was just tapped to join the board of the Russian energy giant Gazprom. He also sits on the board uh, of Nord Stream 2 and also the Russian oil producer Rosneft. Um, Do you support him sitting on these boards? What what message does that send? He is not speaking for the government. He is not working for the government. He is not the government. I am the chancellor now. Right. And uh, the political strategies of Germany are the one you hear from me. But it is something that I've heard the Ukrainian cite as an example of where is Germany's allegiance? Look where Schroeder is. He's, he's cashing in with all these Russian uh, energy giants. Yeah, but uh, this is a talk you might have with him here at CNN, <laughs> uh, but uh, you should not have with me. I am doing the politics for Germany. I'm doing my job, and my job is to work very hard that the Ukraine has a good uh, future. And this is also what we do in the questions of uh, the economic future of Ukraine. As you know, Germany will go out of the use of gas and oil and coal in within 25 years. So we will not depend on the import of, uh, of fossil fuels uh, to Germany anymore, and this will happen very, very soon. This is why we enlarge our capacities in producing electricity, for instance, with offshore wind, with onshore wind, with solar. We are making our grid more strong. Mm-hmm. And we also work together with partners. And there is the UK in one of the 
key partners for our strategy for the future to produce hydrogen with their natural resources because the industry to come in Germany and possibly worldwide will be an industry that is using gas but not natural gas or coal or right, oil a cleaner. but hydrogen produced for instance in the big landscape of the Ukraine and our activity and our money is now offered to develop such an industry in the Ukraine for giving them a future post-gas. So I want to ask you about a few other issues. Um, neither you nor your foreign minister plan to attend the Olympic Games in Beijing, but you, you have, you're not calling it an official diplomatic boycott. Uh, the United States, the UK, and others are, are doing an official diplomatic boycott because uh, of the Chinese government genocide uh, against the Uyghurs, uh, a Muslim ethnic minority why are you not doing an official diplomatic boycott if you're not going anyway? It does seem like Germany might have a special obligation to stand against genocide in other countries, given your country's history. First, Germany has the strongest legislation on, uh, on production overseas. We did this in the last uh, two years, and uh, it, it's much more strict as in most other countries I know. And this will have an impact on the industries of our country. If they buy things over, overseas, uh, abroad, they will have to follow these rules. And for instance, looking at the of labor laws, looking at uh, human rights, as you mentioned, is a key strategy. And this will change the world because, as you know, we are a very strong industrial place. Right. We are a big importer and exporter, but what not all people understand, we are really importing a lot of things for the industrial goods we are producing. And if in this strategy we are doing this new regulation, which we have now in Germany, this will change the world. But why not do a second, diplomatic boycott? And, and the second is that we agreed that we will do it together with our partners in the European Union, that we will find a common strategy on what we will explain in this case politically. But it was all the time clear that no one was planning to do a trip over there. Right. But... China, the Chinese government is committing genocide against the Uyghurs, and Germany has a history of genocide. I would think that your country of all countries would want to stand against what the Chinese government is doing. As I already said, we are working very hard, and in all the activities we are doing, this is playing a big role. For instance, the rules of the International Labour Organization for us, has to be implemented also in the trade agreements which are responsible, uh, which are planned between the European Union and, uh, and China, one of the questions. But there are a lot of more. So you see that there is a very constant and very effective strategy we are following. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that this will help. Let's talk about Iran, because Germany is, is among the Western nations trying to revive that landmark and controversial Iran nuclear deal. If diplomacy fails um, and an agreement cannot be reached, what next steps do you need do you think need to be taken with Iran to convince that country to not uh, have a nuclear weapons program? We are very clear together with our friends. We are working together and acting together. And this is now the time for Iran to make a decision. There is no time for prolonging the debates and things like that, which happened in the past, because we look at the situation in Iran and we see that they are making progress with their capacity building of having a nuclear bomb and being able to use them on uh, missiles. And because of that, it's clear that we will not wait, that it will have a cost, it will have consequences 
if Iran is not using the opportunity which is coming up now. There is really leadership from the United States and the president, from all the partners we are working together to convince Iran now to use the chance which is now. And now that is the message I also would like to send from our talk here. Take the chance. It's not nothing for prolonging. We don't want to continue and continue, continue talks. It's now to take the chance. Last question, sir, and I really do appreciate your taking my questions. We've talked about Iran getting a nuclear weapon, the possibility. We've talked about war breaking out in Ukraine. Uh, we've talked about what's going on in China. There's so many threats in this world. What keeps you up at night? What do you worry about? I think we have to be absolutely clear that peace is the most important question we have to work for. This will be only successful if we are working for our own strength. It's uh, necessary for, for, for being successful. Peace everywhere we, or peace in Ukraine? What do, you, what do you mean? I'm speaking about peace everywhere. This is what you asked me about. Yeah. And so I think this will be an important aspect of our political strategy. This means military strength, and we are working very hard for that, and economic strength, which is the basis for military strength. And it is partnership in NATO and the European Union for us. And we will very much do this. And there is a new aspect in the politics which should never be underestimated. We understand ourselves as democracies, countries that follow the rule of law. And this is what is what makes us being the same team with the United States and with our partners in the European Union. And this is different to many other countries and regimes and states in the world. But I'm absolutely sure that the way of life we have with democracy, the rule of law, with individual freedom and with market economy is a way of life that people would appreciate all over the, the planet. And so we should be confident that if we are following a clear strategy of uh, international cooperation, but implemented in cooperation between partners and allies, as the NATO, for instance, is, we will be successful in the end. But do you, just to, just to try to uh, uh, bring this point home, President Biden talks a lot about how the, the struggle right now in the world is between democracies, like the United States and Germany, versus autocracies, places where there are no freedoms, where uh, there is no democracy, like Russia, like China. Do you worry that we are going to lose that fight? No. It is a strong fight, but uh, the ideas that created the United States and the ideas that were important for our democratic development, they are ideas of mankind. They are not just Western ideas or North America and Europe and some other places. It's something which is deeply in us as, as men. And because of that, I'm absolutely sh sure that this, we will succeed in this game because it's coming from the people even in those countries. And the very strange situation we are in is that this is not anymore a struggle between communism, socialism on the one side and capitalism on the other. There are all over capitalist states North Korea may be the, the one other country. But uh, all the others are capitalists, but they are autocrats. They are following ideologies and they are not giving the freedom to their people, which they are lacking for. And so we should develop our role in the world of international 
cooperation, in uh, multilateralism, that we build an environment where during this situation, the people of those countries will take their chances. I appreciate, uh, I appreciate you being here, and I hope you're right. I hope, you. uh, I hope our side does win. Uh, the German Chancellor, uh, Olaf Scholz, thank you so much for your time today. So thank I really you appreciate coming up. The protests over COVID restrictions that keep growing and are now leading to one city's mayor to declare a state of emergency. Plus, censored, tracked, and silenced. CNN takes a look at what it's like to try to report the truth in China from both inside and outside the Olympic bubble. It's the latest in our series, Behind China's Wall. Stay with us. In our health lead, Canada is seeing its second week of protests against COVID restriction. Protests that have crippled everyday life there. It started with a group of truckers angry about vaccine mandates blocking traffic on January 29th. Over the weekend, more demonstrations sprouted across the country in Vancouver, Toronto, Quebec City. Streets are clogged. The honking is incessant and deafening. Many businesses and even some schools cannot open. Now the mayor of Ottawa is declaring a state of emergency. Let's get right to CNN's Paula Newton, who's live in Ottawa. And Paula, police have been reluctant to take any major steps to clear the protesters because of of fears of of escalating matters and, and, you know, sparking violence. Has that changed at all? It seems to be changing. Look, the police uh, chief just updated us again a few hours ago, and he's saying, look, make no mistake. He would like to end this protest as soon as possible. To that end, they are asking for hundreds more police officers, and they're being very blunt, Jake. They're saying, look, we cannot clear the number of trucks and protesters that are out there without help. Uh, And at issue now is what you do in the meantime for those residents that are so beleaguered. I I mean, the things coming out of, you know, city officials here who have had complaints from residents that I have spoken to who say they feel terrorized, intimidated. They can't work. So many of them have fled the downtown core. But but Jake, there's another thing here, right? There are uh, people, city officials, backed up by some federal officials and backed up by the police chief saying, look, sedition, insurrection, a threat to democracy. This is how they are perceiving perceiving this protest now. And a lot of that threat comes from the support they're getting also from the United States and beyond. And a lot of that support was in the form of monetary support, one of the largest fundraising campaigns ever in Canada, Jake. It raised over $9 million for this protest. It has now been halted by GoFundMe because Ottawa police gave them evidence that it was unlawful. But I want you to hear from Mark Carney, former Bank of Canada governor, former governor of the Bank of England, now a resident of Ottawa. He writes in the Globe and Mail, by now anyone sending money to the convoy should be in no doubt you are funding sedition. Foreign funders of an insurrection interfered in our domestic affairs from the start. Canadian authorities should take every step within the law to identify and thoroughly punish them. You know, Jake, you have to think a sitting senator, Ted Cruz, has supported the truckers, the former president, Donald Trump. I could go on. There are so many people, not just, uh, you know, again, a certain contingent of people who are against COVID-19 restrictions in the United States, but sitting legislators right now. The police chief's warning to them is cut it out. We need to put this protest to an end. We will follow the money, and, and this funneling of money to them must stop. Yeah, Cruz and Trump led a, an attempt at an insurrection here in the United States as well, Paula Newton. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Back in the U.S., the hotly debated topic is mask mandates in schools. Moments ago, Connecticut's governor joined New Jersey's and Delaware's 
in announcing an end to mask mandates in schools in that state, despite the CDC guidance, which still says that kids should mask up. Let's bring in CNN medical analyst Dr. Jonathan Reiner. Dr. Reiner, it's not just New Jersey, Delaware, Connecticut, Democratic governors in New York, Massachusetts, Rhode Island are considering shifts in school masking guidance to most states do not have masks required in schools. Um, What do you think? Is this the right time to remove masking? Deaths are still high, even though case counts are not. Well, case counts actually are still high. Well, they're going in the right direction, though. Yeah, that's that's what I meant. I'm sorry, I misspoke. Yeah, but but that's actually an, an important point. Okay. We've become a little bit sort of numb to how many cases we actually have. So so let's talk about New Jersey, for instance. So where where Governor Murphy is getting ready to remove uh, masking requirements in schools. New Jersey, at the peak of Omicron, had about thirty two thousand cases per day. They're now down to about three thousand cases per day, which is a ninety percent drop. But think about the summer. In July, New Jersey was averaging less than 200 cases a day. So they, their case rates are 15 times higher than they were uh, during the summers. Case rates are still pretty high. We're moving in the right direction, but we're not there yet. And the other thing to remember is that uh, most of our kids are not vaccinated. Only 55% of kids between 12 and 17 are fully vaccinated. Only 22% of kids between 5 and 11 are fully vaccinated. So the combination of still a lot of virus in the community and not a lot of kids vaccinated, to me, says that we need to wait a little bit longer until there's less virus in the community. I know everybody isn't patient. I want to drop the masks, too. We just need to be a little more patient. If parents are concerned about sending their kids to school without a mask mandate, as is the case in most schools, especially if those parents have a kid who's immunocompromised, um, should the parent feel safe? allowing their kid to go to school and having the kid wear a a well-fitting N95 mask, even if the other kids are not masked? You know, we have a community and we have to live as a community. And and sort of, you know, the analogy I think of is if you've ever had a kid with, a let's say, a nut allergy and they're invited to a birthday party and, you know, you call the other kids' parents, and you say, look, my kid's allergic to nuts. Can you make sure there are no, you know, there's no peanut butter at the party? And that parent said to you, oh, we're going to have plenty of peanut butter there. Your kid just shouldn't eat it, right? To me, that's, what it, that's how I think about when you have an immunocompromised kid and the community, the class says, we're not wearing masks. You protect yourself. I think we're better than that. I think we're better than that as a country and as a community. Do you think that schools should be mandating vaccines or governors should be mandating vaccines for, for students uh, instead of dropping mask mandates or in place of? Yeah. I, why would we not mandate a, uh, a safe and effective vaccine that, that prevents a disease that has killed a thousand kids in the last two years? Why would we not mandate that? Right. We mandated for, you know, measles, mumps, rubella, polio, for about eight other uh, uh, diseases. And look, if we all want to move to a, to a point where kids are you know, free to enjoy school without masks, without being encumbered like that, why wouldn't we emphasize vaccines and mandate that all kids have vaccines the same way we do it for all these other childhood diseases? It just makes common sense. The only reason not to do that is that it's become so politicized. 
The CDC is considering lengthening the time between the first and the second doses of the Pfizer and Moderna COVID vaccines uh, to eight weeks. I think it was two and three weeks. Um, Explain to us why uh, these pharmaceutical companies think that this might create a better immune response. Yeah, so when we first started, you know, designing these uh, dosing strategies 18 months ago, almost almost two years ago, when we were starting to think about how to put these vaccines together, some of it was a guess. And also when we started rolling out these vaccines, there was an urgency to get effective immune response in, in the community, which is why they spaced, you know, the Pfizer vaccine at three, at three weeks and the Moderna vaccine at four weeks. But it turns out there's data to suggest you can get a, a more robust response if you wait a little bit longer for the, for the, second, for the second dose. The other potential benefit is that it's also thought that potentially even maybe most importantly in younger people, that some of the side effects, the most worrisome would be, let's say, myocarditis might be lessened if you uh, gave the second dose spaced out maybe a month later. So that it's an interesting, interesting strategy. And it, and it might make sense going going forward to to Im- improve the immune response and decrease the side effect profile. Dr. Reiner, good to see you as always. Thanks so much. Coming up, a tough choice. Florida's governor has asked who he sides with on whether or not Pence had the ability to overturn the election. Does he side with Pence or does he side with Trump? His answer coming up. Grim news in our national lead. The U.S. and Canada could be facing more than a million more opioid deaths over the next seven years if nothing successful is done to stop it. That's according to a new study published in the medical journal The Lancet, which shows opioid-related deaths spiked 30% in the U.S. between 2019 and 2020 and climbed 67% in Canada during that same period. And now experts argue the only thing that will stop this is a holistic approach by government agencies and healthcare providers and pharmaceutical companies and law enforcement, especially when it comes to one of the deadliest synthetic opioids, fentanyl. CNN's At This Hour anchor Kate Baldwin had an exclusive sit-down with Ann Milgram, who is the administrator of the Drug Enforcement Administration. Kate, what did she have to say? So for the first time, uh, the DEA administrator is sitting down with CNN and laying out a new approach, a new strategy. And specifically, they're pinpointing this intersection between drugs, fentanyl, and violent crime. They say the data shows that there is a huge amount of overlap. And the reason she says they need this new approach is she calls fentanyl one of the most deadly and underestimated substances on the planet. She explains a little further. This problem, starting in 2015, every single year the United States has seen exponential increases in fentanyl, which is the most deadly drug. 64,000 of those 100,000 deaths, the overdose deaths, are attributable to fentanyl. So the problem has gotten worse. And what we've seen is that there's a number, uh, there are a number of things that, that are happening. COVID, of course, is one of them, and I think we can't ignore that. The other piece is that fentanyl is now in all 50 states. It's lacing every other drug, whether that's methamphetamine, heroin, marijuana, every other drug. And it's also being sold in new forms like fake prescription pills. So people think they're buying a Xanax or an Adderall or an oxycodone, and they're getting fentanyl, and they're dying at record rates. And so what they're doing now is they're targeting 34 cities in 23 states. And this is the entire country, East Coast, West Coast, Midwest, Tulsa, Oklahoma, San Bernardino, California, Pine Bluff, Arkansas, all the way up the East Coast. She calls them hotspots. That's what the data is showing. And that's why they're focusing there now. 
So we, we've been covering this for a while now, the fentanyl um, tr- problem, which is, you know, some, we, you know, Congressman Ted Deutsch, his nephew thought he was taking some legal herbal supplement and it had fentanyl in it and he died. Yeah. Kid in college. Um, how is the DA tackling the source of fentanyl? The administrator is really specific on three things. One, China. This is where the chemicals for the poisons come from, shipped out daily in a largely unregulated industry. They go to Mexico. So then you have Mexico where the drug cartels are mass producing this for pennies on a factory level scale because it's so different from the plant-based drugs that, we're con- that, are so, that we know, cocaine and heroin. This is on a whole other level. She also points to social media. And she says these are drug dealers who can access anyone, anytime, in a way that they've never been able to before for online sales, specifically like Ted Deutsch's nephew. They are often ordering drugs, could be Adderall, and they're fake pills laced with fentanyl. They don't even know what they're taking. Yeah, it's she on says, TikTok, it's on Instagram. Exactly, and then it disappears. On Like Snapchat, it disappears in 24 hours. She says all three of these, China, Mexico, social media, they know it's a problem. They are not doing nearly enough. Keep, keep coming back and talking about your coverage of this because it's so important and yeah. we cannot get enough it's of terrifying. it. It's terrifying. Thank you so much for being here. You can watch Kate's entire interview with DEA Administrator Ann Milgram tomorrow on her show at this hour, which is at 11 a.m. Eastern, right here on CNN. Keep all that. So good. It's been years. Literally <laughs> Literally years. has been. Good. Good it's see. great to see you. Thanks for being here. He is not calling it a comeback yet. Disgraced former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo is talking about his future and maybe running for public office again. <clears throat> Stay with us. Here the politics lead now. Sources telling CNN that former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo is seriously considering a political comeback. One source says that the disgraced Democrat may even challenge Attorney General Letitia James in a primary run. It was, of course, the investigation by James's office that led to Cuomo's resignation. That investigation accused Cuomo of sexual harassment and worse, involving 11 women. From the beginning, Cuomo has denied any wrongdoing. And now, as CNN's Bryn Gingrass reports, Cuomo also denies that any run for office would be an attempt at vindication. Andrew Cuomo may be considering a political comeback, two sources tell CNN. His eyes may be set on the office that played a part in his fall from grace, the New York attorney general, according to a source. In a recent phone interview with Bloomberg News, the disgraced former governor says, in hindsight, he shouldn't have resigned. I never resigned because I said I did something wrong. I said I'm resigning because I don't want to be a distraction. The best way I can help now is if I step aside and let government get back to governing. And therefore, that's what I'll do. The 64-year-old left the governor's mansion last August after New York Attorney General Letitia James released a scathing report finding Cuomo sexually harassed 11 women, including some of his former aides. Cuomo and his team have always denied the allegations. As the governor has said, this simply did not happen. No one more publicly than his personal attorney, who continues to point out what she considers flaws in the AG's report. The attorney general's investigation was shoddy. It was one-sided, and there was a predetermined outcome. James has continually stood by the investigation, her office telling CNN Today, quote, only he is to blame for inappropriately touching his own staff and then quitting so he didn't have to face impeachment. His baseless attacks won't change the reality. Andrew Cuomo is a serial sexual harasser. I believe those 11 women. I believe those report. 
Since Cuomo's resignation, district attorneys in four New York counties opened investigations into his conduct and decided not to pursue charges despite saying the women's claims are credible. Cuomo told Bloomberg News, if you do an honest summary, which is what I get from people on the street, I have been vindicated. A source says there are no specifics of how or when Cuomo may make a return, but financial support remains steady. Latest campaign finance report shows he has more than $16 million in the bank and continues to solicit and receive donations as small as $5 from non-New Yorkers to thousands of dollars from donors in-state. And he's been making calls to gauge support. Just last week, Cuomo had dinner with New York Mayor Eric Adams, but it's unclear if his political future was discussed. I'm not going to go into private conversations. Uh, That is unfair to do so. Uh, Our meeting was about the governance of this state. And sources tell CNN that if Cuomo does make a entrance again into the political arena, it could be for a more modest role like a Democratic Party chair. But also something to keep in mind, Jake, as you know, the General Assembly here in New York was considering impeaching Cuomo after all these allegations surfaced. And if they had and if he was convicted, then he would not even be able to run for political office. Of course, we know it never went forward with that process, which certainly looms large over all of this speculation. All right, Bryn Gingrass, thank you so much. Let's discuss. Uh, so, Tia, let me start with you. Um, Governor Cuomo, there's been a whole bunch of district attorneys and sheriffs and such that have decided to not pursue charges against Governor Cuomo for all the allegations of sexual harassment and sexual assault and the like. None of the women have recanted, by the way. The, the, the law enforcement just have decided not to go forward. But Governor Cuomo is out there, former Governor Cuomo, presenting this as vindication. Right. And that's incorrect. And quite frankly, if he decides to re-enter the political sphere, I think he risks those things coming back up, some of those investigations being reignited because it went away because he went away. So if he comes back, those things are likely to come back. Um, You know, but we all know career politicians and sometimes they just can't stay away from the limelight. So I'm not surprised, but I think it may not be as easy as he and his allies are trying to make it seem that you can just jump back in there. And, and, I mean, there are a, a number of very credible accusations, and these, a lot of these women have come forward and given interviews that seem very, very believable. Does he want to rehash all of this again in a campaign setting? This and, by the way, the management of the pandemic, right, the, 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 the nursing homes and issues and, and the like. Um, I, I mean, I share your lack of surprise, and I also, and I also agree that it might, be, it might be too tempting. But if you think back to all the different ways— all the different things that could get could be brought that up in a campaign setting. I just don't know why you'd want to go through the headache. What do you think, Paul? You know him from the Clinton years, I back do. when he was the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. Then he went on to run for governor, and not one member of the Clinton cabinet endorsed him in that race. He, I, it seems to me, this is strikes me as more about vengeance than vindication. Um, he says, I, "I resigned not because I was guilty, but because it was a distraction." <laughs> well. There was yeah. going to be an impeachment proceeding that he was going to lose. Yes. Well, you think, Tia and, and Olivier said this, do you think it's going to be a distraction on a campaign trail? Do you think anybody's going to want to hear his five-point plan on housing, which I'm sure would be very good? He knows that subject. No one will. You know, I, I think his promise is Machiavelli said it's better to be feared than to be loved, right? He was feared. He no longer is. Mm. And now, by the way, he never was loved by the New York Democrats, I don't think. And so he has neither fear nor love. And um, I just don't know where, where he goes with that. He's a perfect exemplar of the era in which we now live, because if you are a total scoundrel, you cannot succeed in business or the education world or a nonprofit, but you can succeed as an elected official. 
And it's kind of the last the last uh, resort of scoundrels is now to run for office again. And so, you know, Donald Trump, who arguably would not have been able to maintain a position other than an elected office. And uh, and and Cuomo is uh, is following in that mold. He can get the vote. He hopes. And of course, it's probably not true. But he hopes he can get the voters to uh, to to believe that uh, that he deserves uh, that he deserves their respect, and and uh, that's that's a, a commentary on our voters. Quick note on on, on Trump, which is uh, last week, of course, there was all that drama. Uh, Vice Pre- former Vice President Pence said that Donald Trump was wrong uh, to think that he, to say that he could have overturned the election on January 6, twenty twenty one, and there was nothing more un-American than that that idea. Um, the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, uh, Olivier today, was asked whether or not he sided with Pence or Trump. Take a listen. Are you falling on the divide between Pence and Trump? Right over. I'm not. I, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I've, uh, I've uh, you know, had a great relationship working for four. Actually, was governor for two years uh, with the Trump administration. I. Really that tough just to say? He didn't that- see the tweet. He didn't see the tweet. Sorry, yeah. Dick. He just didn't see the tweet. Yeah. Right. It's the classic avoidance, you know, not wanting to get pulled into this fight. I think um, just to reflect quickly, Pence is correct that, yeah. that he didn't have the authority to do this. Uh, Trump is wrong to say that Pence had the authority to do this. DeSantis is choosing not to choose between um, the correct answer and the incorrect answer. Um, Oh, come on. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you want to say something. I gotta... Yeah. This but is... I mean, he could yeah. run for president. He could very well be uh, the Which next one. Uh, DeSantis. Yeah, they can all run for president. But no, the... but he could very. People... No, he could be. Look, the fact is, this party has beclowned itself. Um, you didn't mention, but the other thing that happened was that the Republican National Committee denounced the very people who are telling the truth, Cheney and Kinzinger. And described January 6th as descri- le- yes, legitimate, legitimate political, political discourse. discourse. So that's where the Republican Party is. You can count on one hand the number of Republicans who have been willing to say the most basic thing, and Pence deserves a modicum of credit for doing it, uh, that uh, we have to live by a constitution. But the rest of the Republican Party, almost all of it, is a cult. So let's talk about the interview I just did uh, of the German Chancellor, uh, Olaf um, uh, Schultz, who, again, would not say clearly, definitively, if Russia invades Ukraine, uh, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, natural gas pipeline from Russia to Germany will be dead. We will kill it. I mean, Biden said, basically, I'll kill it. And Schultz said, we're together on this. But he won't say it. Why won't he say it? I think it's just so interesting He's a European a leader of a European nation that needs Russia for so many things. You know, you talk about their um, the fuel and so much of their economy that he's a little bit. I, I think he's just more cautious. A lot of those leaders in Europe are. But I think at the same time, it was a little encouraging that at least they were together. You know, it wasn't this tense meeting where they were showing all this hesitancy to go in there together. He said, you know, I'll be with you without saying what he'll be with him on. But it just shows the precarious situation, and, and Putin knows that. That's yeah. why he's able to move the way he's been moving these past few weeks. Paul? Yeah, I, I think if you piece it together, right, the president said plainly, I mean, I, I wrote it down, if Russia invades tanks or troops crossing the border of Ukraine again, then there will be no longer a Nord Stream 2. We will bring an end to it, period. Mm-hmm. And then the chancellor said to you, 
Well, we'll all be together. We'll act together. We'll stand yeah. together. So I piece those together and say, well, there's going to be no Nord Stream 2. And, and I, I think President Biden does have the capacity to end it unilaterally. Yeah, with very strict sanctions. But right. why won't uh, Chancellor Schultz just say it? Uh, well, he's been playing a double game a little bit. I mean, he has been very, very uh, soft on, on Russia for quite some time, unwilling to allow defensive weapons to go to Ukraine. It reminds me, you know, when he said we don't interfere in conflict zones, it reminded me of the story about, you know, there's one man who pushes an old lady out of the path of a train, and there's another man who pushes an old lady in front of the path of a train, and the person on the side says, oh, well, they're both guilty of pushing old ladies around. <laughs> Right. So it really matters whether you're giving defensive weapons to a country that is being threatened by its you know, aggressive yeah. neighbor. And he didn't he wasn't willing to make that distinction. And Germany participated in lethal combat in Bosnia. Yeah. And it's good they did. We're glad they're a NATO ally. They were obligated to. They're obligated here too. final thought. Think about how far Germany's come in the last 12 months on issues with related to China and issues related to Germany. Sorry, to Russia. Uh, that yeah. He won't say it. But uh, six months ago, they were saying this, is, this has nothing to do with, with tensions with Russia. Thanks to all of you. Appreciate it. The announcement from Chinese tennis star Peng Shui that is raising questions about the timing and much more. Stay with us. Time now for Behind China's Wall, our series in which we go behind the fanfare and the glamour of the Olympic Games. The Chinese government, of course, hopes to use the Games to distract the world from its crackdowns on freedoms and crimes against humanity and genocide. A new twist today in the saga of Chinese tennis star Peng Shui. In an interview with a French newspaper, she denied having made sexual assault allegations against a former senior Communist Party leader. Allegations first seen in a long social media post from her account. She now calls it a misunderstanding and says she's retiring, saying it would be, quote, practically impossible to return to competition. This dialogue occurred, of course, under the watchful eye of a Chinese Olympic Committee official. CNN's David Culver joins us live from Beijing. And David, the, the timing of her retirement announcement is raising a lot of eyebrows. Tell us. Yeah, it sure is, Jake. And the reality is Chinese officials, they want to move past this so badly. So perhaps it's not all that surprising that in that sit-down interview, Peng Shui also announced that she's leaving professional tennis. So you will not see her traveling the world in competitions anymore. This as she once again denied ever making sexual assault allegations. For many, the most anticipated meet of the Winter Games, International Olympic Committee President Thomas Bach and Chinese tennis player Peng Shui at dinner inside the Olympic COVID closed loop. But censorship questions swirl, the IOC not willing to provide images of the pair's meeting. A degree of transparency came the next day when Peng sat with journalists from French sports paper L'Equipe. The nearly hour-long interview hitting on Peng's emotional accusation of sexual assault and her immediate disappearance from the public eye. It's all, according to Peng, just an enormous misunderstanding. And with the Chinese Olympics official playing chaperone, the reporter saying he knew he would have to look past the tennis player's words. She was very cautious about our question and our answer. But as I said, it's, I'm dumb speak Chinese. She's done it. Peng is herself a three-time former Olympian. Last November, the tennis star posted a painful message to social media, accusing this man, a former Chinese vice premier, once among the country's most powerful, of sexual assault. The post, gone from Chinese social media within half an hour. 
while Peng fell silent. For more than two weeks, many around the world feared for her safety as the Chinese censors went to work, deleting all traces of her accusation and scrubbing international coverage from China's airwaves. China blocked our feed. It was too late to stop the global outcry. Some of the biggest names in sport offering their support, fearing she was being held against her will, while China attempted to stem the criticism, initially with a letter that state media said was from Peng, insisting everything is fine. Then she reappeared, happy and smiling, in videos posted on Twitter, not seen in China, that the Women's Tennis Association said may also be staged. The WTA took a firm stance, halting all upcoming tournaments in China. We have to start as a world making decisions that are based upon um, right and wrong, period. This is bigger than the business. Beijing. But the Beijing Winter Olympics would not be stopped. And Thomas Bach has taken on the task of reassuring the world. The IOC treated it as something to basically be swept under the rug. What a sad, sad state of affairs. The Chinese propaganda machine in overdrive. Peng shown off by state media at a ski competition in Shanghai in December, alongside basketball legend Yao Ming. The Chinese government has not acknowledged the sexual assault allegations, but its foreign ministry said it hoped the, quote, malicious speculation about her would stop. Sunday's L'Equipe report is not the first time Peng has said she never made the accusation of assault. Now, telling a Western outlet that she didn't disappear, she just had too many messages to respond to, that she herself deleted her accusation. But no inquiry has been announced. And there is still no way of knowing whether Peng has been allowed to speak her own mind. A short time ago, we heard from the chairman and CEO of the Women's Tennis Association in a statement, Steve Simon saying in part, I'll read it here, quote, Peng's recent in-person interview does not alleviate any of our concerns. We have called for a formal investigation into the allegations by the appropriate authorities and an opportunity for the WTA to meet with Peng privately to discuss her situation. Jake, we know the Chinese central government controls nearly every aspect of life here. So the question is, so long as she is here in China, will she ever really be able to speak freely? I think we know the answer to that. Um, David, the, the Peng Shui saga illustrates the, the challenges that journalists, even Western journalists, face in mainland China, where the government heavily censors news uh, and hides facts and truth from its citizens. Now, you and CNN Selena Wang took a, a look at the severe restrictions and the lack of access facing excellent journalists like both of you, both inside and outside the Beijing Olympic bubble. Let, let's take a look at that piece. It's been a long time since there were this many foreign journalists in Beijing, but we're strictly controlled under COVID rules. I can't just walk out of the hotel. <laughs> and my driver can't just take me wherever I want to go. We have to stay in our lane, literally. <laughs> this, the closest we can get to Beijing residents. They are he said the police will take me if I were to walk out of the gate. It's really hard to get into China right now as a journalist, but to cover these Olympic Games, we can get in without any visa issues. But the catch is we have to stay strictly confined into what the organizers are calling the closed loop. Other than our hotel, our only options are the Olympic venues. The authorities know where we are at all times. We'll talk to them. Restrictions, lack of access, a daily occurrence for journalists living in Beijing. I'm from, I'm from U.S., but I live in Beijing. 
CNN has regularly had run-ins with the Chinese police around Tiananmen Square, in secret of Xinjiang, and throughout my coverage of the first COVID-19 outbreak in Wuhan. Oftentimes, our reports on subjects deemed sensitive by Chinese officials are censored in mainland China. As the relationship between Chinese and Western leaders has crumbled, so has the international press corps based here. Journalists have been forced to leave. It's not a particularly good experience, too. Perhaps the most chilling case recently, Chinese state news anchor Chang Le, an Australian citizen detained since 2020 on an accusation of spying. We don't know where she's being held. Now the Olympic Games, a carefully managed opportunity for China to reintroduce itself. Journalists like me who live here, now joined by hundreds of new faces, albeit separated by barriers. But her sources in China live with much greater risk, like human rights activist Hu Jia, a prominent critic of the Communist Party. Speaking to me from house arrest, he says authorities are frightened he might stage a demonstration during the Olympics while the world is watching. He tells me he'll be locked in for months. They've threatened to stop him from seeing his elderly mother if he doesn't comply. He's used to getting a knock on the door from police, who he says have visited him four times in the past eight days. The security of the closed loop? Keeping people safe from COVID as more cases are registered among Olympic personnel, but also keeping journalists from telling their stories. And Selena, uh, you're inside the strict COVID bubble with the Olympic athletes. What is that like? Yeah, Jake, it's been surreal. From the minute I stepped off the airplane in Beijing, I was greeted by this sea of hazmat suits in this bubble where COVID tested daily. Our health details tracked on my burner phone. But it's very odd because I used to live in Beijing and to be able to drive through the streets but unable to get out and to see familiar faces like David's or my grandma's, but only to see them from meters away, separated by layers and layers of barricades. So the COVID-19 rules have given a reason for authorities to carefully manage and control where we go and what we do, Jake. And David, you're outside uh, the Olympic bubble. You live in mainland China. It's, it's not much better, though, access-wise for you these days. Explain how authorities are, are using, even exploiting the pandemic, to keep you from traveling to so-called sensitive sites. Yeah, we often talk about lockdowns and contact tracing here. It's seemingly effective in containing the virus, also really effective in containing us journalists. We often find that places like Xinjiang have very strict COVID entry requirements. Depending on the Chinese city that you're actually traveling from, they can put you in quarantine, Jake, for up to 14 days, even with negative tests in hand. So we, along with everyone else in China, are also tracked constantly through our smartphones. It's something that really allows them to keep tabs on us. All right, Selena Wang and David Culver reporting from Beijing in our Behind China's Wall series. Thanks to both of you. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok, AJ Tapper. You can tweet the show at the lead CNN. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer right next door in the Situation Room. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. 
a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.